The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I'm turning today once more to the book of Philippians, chapter 2 of Philippians, a tremendous New Testament chapter now that we deal with. All of this book is worthy of superlatives. And the passage about Christ, of course, that we come to in chapter 2 is so well known. I'll break it in two portions to deal with the second part of it the next time I'm with you. But listen, I'll read verses 1 through 8 with a concentration really on beginning at verse 3 through 8. Listen to God's holy word, Philippians 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who Being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Father, help us to see the grandeur and the power of this message and of what you make possible in our lives as Jesus dwells in us as Lord by your Holy Spirit. We ask in his name. Amen. I'm going to mention a famous person, and I'd just like you, you don't have to call out answers, but If you would silently think of a word, this is word association, a word that would characterize this person's life and activities as you know and remember. The name of the person who is deceased, and in fact, her 100th birthday would have just occurred recently had she lived, is Mother Teresa of Calcutta. What do you think of? Chances are words like servanthood or humility probably entered your mind in that flash if you know anything of this lady of the recent past. A tiny little nun, not even five feet tall, 
from an obscure country, Albania, a place we don't think of great Christians coming from, who took herself to India and spent most of her time in the poorest slums of Calcutta, rescuing people who were literally just thrown into the street because nobody cared about them or had anything to do with them. And she held them, bathed them. She and her other sisters cared for them as they even died. What I'm trying to illustrate this morning is, isn't it rather ironic that if we try to think of people who are famous for being humble, it isn't easy, is it? There isn't really a long list of names that comes to mind. You might know people in your personal circle, perhaps a grandparent who walked close with the Lord and served others in a very humble way, or some dear friend. But if you go out to those who are well-known in the newspapers every day, those whose names we read about in politics or in the world of sports or the world of entertainment, How many names flash into your mind to say, well, here's a great person, and what's great about them is they're so humble. In fact, in those fields I just named, you don't get famous for that, for being humble. You get famous for competing in one way or another, politically or athletically or in the entertainment cycle, and and getting somebody, a press agent or a manager, to promote your name. And get your name up at the top and in in the papers where people will notice you. Your ego has to attract attention. Our society might call modesty and humility traits that it admires, but what it primarily rewards is pride and arrogance. It's rare indeed to witness true greatness defined by a demonstration of humility. Now, last time as we studied Philippians 1.27 through 2.2, we saw Paul exhorting the unity of the body of Christ. He said that people were to live lives, verse 27, conduct yourself in a worthy manner, worthy of the gospel. If you bear its name, live up to its name. See that your life is is clean and honoring and following the Word of God. And, And he called them in doing that to a great unity among themselves because they possessed one spirit. They were loved with one love in God the Father. They should be one in mind and one in purpose. Well, I would contend that Philippians 2 might have just as well been divided to begin at what is called verse 3 in our Bible. I'm not suggesting the chapter divisions are actually mistaken, but there is a slight turning here. And what is different at verse 3 is Paul begins to speak to the individual. He had been speaking to them as a whole, summoning up their, their unity as a Christian body, the church. But now in verse 3, he begins to speak individually warning individuals that any assertion of their natural native human pride or any eruption of of arrogance or seeking for glorification of themselves in the midst of the body of Christ will wreck the unity that he has in mind. You know, after all, pride is the Bible's master sin. It's at the root of just about everything else. 
If somebody ever asks you, well, well what's sin? You know, we, we talk about the seven deadly sins and so on. Pride is the beginning of every one of them. It, it's in the root. It's buried there in everything we do. Seeking after self. We may not be bold and brazen about it, but we love ourselves. We want to protect ourselves. We want our own comfort. We want, yes, even the most mild of us who may not have that much of a public image, wants to be noticed, wants people to give approval to us, maybe even applause to us. And so there is this striving, this self-seeking, and Paul knows it's right there beneath the surface. If it breaks out, if it is pursued, it's going to ruin the body of Christ. Christ can't be Lord while I and parading about as a little God, small g God, in my life. Now, the theme of Philippians 2, 3 through 8, and and I realize perfectly well that I cut this text off. We need to consider 9 through 11, of course, and I, I want to do that again the next time we're together. But the theme up to verse 8, I think, can be stated this way. At every stage of our development as a Christian disciple, native human pride is our greatest enemy. And deliberate humility in the image of Christ is our greatest friend. That's what we want to look at this morning. Verse 3 lays down a first point for us that says this, Christian discipleship reverses how the world values pride versus humility. The world actually values, generally speaking, pride. The Roman world in which these people lived certainly did. In fact, we're told that in Roman civilization, the whole idea of being humble and modest was really not valued much at all. In fact, a humble person was was almost synonymous with being despised, being the doormat person that everybody else would just walk on and abuse. Rome gave her prizes to the intellectuals, to the warriors, to those who asserted themselves on their own behalf. A little illustration came to mind to me. I have a lot of songs of old musicals locked away in my brain, and I was thinking about the Lerner and Lowe musical of Camelot from the 1960s when King Arthur's illegitimate son, Mordred, sings a taunting song celebrating vice. He literally has dedicated his life not to virtue but to vice. And he sings about the seven deadly virtues, mocking them. And Mordred actually is satirical about the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in his little song when he says, it's not the earth the meek inherit, it's the dirt. Don't be meek, he says. You just get your face pushed into the mud and people step on you. Well, there are many who subscribe to Mordred's theme and say, yes, that's the way it is. You have to look out for yourself. If you don't step up, if you don't promote yourself, if you're not a little bit pushy, you get stepped on. Well, the Word of God here in Philippians is contradicting that egocentric view of the person. And Paul writes to Christians, and and let me interject here. This is not advice to the society as a whole of just be humble. 
Paul would know you can't give society that advice because people without Christ are naturally proud. They're just doing what they're made to do. He's speaking to people who have Christ and the Holy Spirit indwelling them and have a new power and a new nature. All of this advice is premised on that. And so he writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others to be better than yourself. That's really radical. It's really hard to do if we think about that phrase and what it says. But Paul's startling 180-degree reversal of worldly thinking is lived out only within a biblical worldview of pride and humility. I would suggest you could go back to Isaiah chapter 14 to find something that's hidden away in the Bible. We might have expected to find it early in Genesis somewhere, but it wasn't given to us that way. Isaiah 14 tells us a story, literally, of Satan or Lucifer's downfall before the creation of the world. Now, what is there in Isaiah 14 is a denouncement of the earthly king of Babylon. But it's a remarkable passage, as as much prophecy is. It's a two-dimensional passage. It has a surface meaning in the present history when Isaiah was writing with, with Babylon's evil king in view. But it's very clear as you read it that there's like another dimension, a whole scene behind it, which is a non-literal human being, as Isaiah 14.12, for example, describes someone called the morning star, the son of the dawn. This, we believe, is Satan, a created angel of God, a ruler at God's throne, who in his pride, Isaiah 14 said, said this, declared this, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the Most High. Now, you might know the Bible gives several hundred, I think the count is close to 400 different names are assigned to God in the Bible in one way or another. The different names of the different persons of the Trinity, hundreds of them. Why did Lucifer choose to call God the Most High here unless it signified that which he himself was trying to attain? God was the highest above him that he could conceive, and he wanted that. And he said, I can have that somehow. I don't know. We're dealing with things here that are behind history, behind the scenes, very mysterious But here is this fallen ruler at the right hand of God, now fallen, now the leader of the fall, who said, my ambition is to be the top, to knock God off his throne. I will usurp God. That, we believe, is really the root of all sin. It's the same sin that Adam and Eve undertook in Eden in some way, thinking, did God say this? Well, it doesn't really matter what God said. Let's just try our way and see how it works out. Pride is absolutely the core of all human sin. You can illustrate it so many ways. In the book of Proverbs, it's spoken of many times. Proverbs 6, when it tells you a list of things, these are things that God hates says Proverbs 6. What heads the list? Haughty eyes. 
you can just see them, you know, people who aspire to get in front, to be ahead of everybody. Proverbs 16.5 adds, everyone who is arrogant in spirit is an abomination to the Lord. You could give many illustrations of this. Pride comes in all kinds of forms, but they all work themselves out in self-glorification, in putting myself ahead of everybody else. And really in doing so, in a miniature way, saying I'm going to get some of that glory for me that belongs to God. Now, the Scripture shows that the very opposite human posture is the one that draws the pleasure of God. God looks on it and is pleased with it. Isaiah 66, 2 is a classic passage. It says, here is the one, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit who trembles at my word. That encapsulates it all, doesn't it? The person who says, I'm really nothing, God is everything, and I will listen to him in such a way that that the coming of his word I take to be the absolute law and the greatest wisdom I can receive to direct my poor self. In other words, genuine humility attracts the smile of God, the favor of God. The New Testament says it too, 1 Peter 5.5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The book of James says it in a slightly different way. Add teachings like those of Jesus, and we could enumerate a number of ways in which Jesus shows humility. I'm not even going into him washing others' feet and many of those things. But he said in Mark 9.35, if anyone would be first, he must be the last among you and be willing to be the servant of all. Now this... Just that brief survey tells us that the Bible denounces the world's common valuation on pride and arrogance and vanity and exalts humility as the human quality that God himself prizes. It's his path. It's a lowly path. It's a path that nobody notices very much while you're doing it, but it's the path to true greatness. Now next, as a second major point, We come in this passage, the very wonderful passage, to these verses that begin what some call the hymn to Christ. Some actually think this was a pre-existing hymn or or work of a creed of some type, verses 6 to 11. We can't prove that. It just seems to have that nature. In your Bible, it's probably set off separately as, as if it were perhaps a quotation of something. We just don't know that. There's a lot of speculation about it. But here in verses 5 to 8, we have this tremendous exaltation of Christ, one of the great statements about Christ found in the whole of the New Testament. But we need this morning to remember why we get this statement in the first place. Why is it here? It's here because Paul was saying this, your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus, and here it is. Here's what I'm talking about. And so in the second point, we're going to hear Paul say, we learn true humility by gazing hard at history's greatest example of it. Now, there are three quick subpoints under this as we look at verses 6 through 8, and each of the subpoints goes with each of the three verses, 6, 7, and 8. First in verse 6, 
we see the humility of Christ in his divine preexistence. Any of these subpoints, by the way, could easily be a long, long message of consideration unto itself. Being in very God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That's one of the Bible's amazing statements. Being God, Christ did not say, why, I must hold on to being God. I must flaunt being God. I must seek ever greater displays of, of my Godhood, my divinity, so people will be more and more impressed with me and worship me. No. He was willing to set that aside. Now, I'm not going to begin to try to prove the divinity of Christ here this morning, but just remind you of, of a few places. John 17, 5, in the high priestly prayer of Jesus, when he is near the cross and he's praying to his Father, and he says, Father, I, I desire, my goal is to have that glory that I had with you before the world existed. He was hinting there of something that no camcorder, no, you know, no videotape could ever replay for us, the scene of the fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the prehistoric fellowship, the pre-creation fellowship of God within himself. This is a great wonder and a great mystery. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint, the exact impression of the nature of God. John 1.1, in the beginning was that Word, Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Sometimes we use the Nicene Creed as our confession of faith in this congregation. And when we do, we confess that ancient phrase that Jesus is very God of very God. He's not junior God. He's not associate God. He's not the understudy of God. He is God. And then we stare into that great mystery of the Trinity, that tremendous subject. It is a mystery. We haven't tackled it. We haven't been able to lay it out in a nice mathematical formula, but the Bible declares it. Jesus Christ was fully God from before time. He possessed power as vast as God's creative power and splendor and majesty so high if you gazed into the full brilliance of the sun. It's like looking in total darkness compared to the glory that belongs to him. The Bible says there was this marvelous fellowship before creation, and Philippians 2.6 joins many passages that assert this unity of Jesus as fully God. And yet, he was willing to set aside the visible claims and prerogatives of all that that involved, the glory of it, the power of it. It does not say he set aside being God. That's a heresy, that is not the Bible. It does not say Jesus became man and stopped being God. Don't ever make that mistake. But he laid aside his claims to the perks and the privileges. He would be like the CEO of a great, tremendous corporation who decided that he was going to find out what was going on in his corporation, and he would grow a beard or something and disguise himself, wear a wig and go incognito and become a, a sweeper in one of the factories just so he could see without people 
knowing who he is. He's still the CEO. They haven't put a new CEO in. He's still the CEO, but he's a sweeper in the factory for some reason or purpose. That's at least a crude illustration of what we have with Jesus Christ. He was fully God before creation. And then verse 7, a second sub-point here, tells us of the humility of Christ in the incarnation, becoming man. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant made in human likeness. Now, here again, great mystery. Theologians have debated, well, what does it mean he emptied himself? What did he empty himself of? And some theologians will say, well, he emptied himself of this and this and this, but he didn't empty himself of this and this and that. That isn't really helpful. And I think most those who study what we call Christology, who and what Christ is, have said that isn't helpful. What we need to see is he remained what he was, but at the same time became what he had not been before. The full glory, the full divinity of the Son of the Highest came to dwell in what we might call a human clay pot, the nondescript peasant's body of a man whose citizenship was in a little out-of-the-way town called Nazareth, living long ago. If you would have been transported to the Holy Land in those days and had walked past Jesus in the street as a young man of 15 or 21, I guarantee you there would have been no halo. You would not have said, oh, there he is, that's Jesus. No, he would have looked just like every other 15-year-old, every other 21-year-old working as an apprentice carpenter in that out-of-the-way, no-place town. In other words, he became a real man and subjugated his real divinity to let his humanity, you might say, override or dominate. Now, there were moments, yes, he could still miraculously heal. Yes, he still had some knowledge of things, and he showed it, that, that knowledge that other people didn't have. But for the most part, he put down He laid aside in the sense of not using, not accessing his divinity. That rare moment, you remember the Mount of Transfiguration when he was seen and there was a visible, it was like the curtains pulled pulled back for a moment and then they closed again right away. But his humanity was allowed to override so that we could have the pre-existent Son of God who was very God of very God and yet here he was, hungry, thirsty, praying, bleeding and weeping and dying, submitting to that. Well, then comes the third sub-point, verse 8. The humility of this immortal one submitting himself to death. This great phrase, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, to die at all was a tremendous submission because the Bible says in God alone there is immortality. God alone cannot be touched by death. 1 Timothy 6.16 says only God possesses immortality by right of his existence and, and those to whom he chooses to give immortality will receive it. So to die, the uncreated Son of God had to surrender to it. Permission had to be granted. Death didn't come and grab him the way it grabs us. Some relentless disease that despite all the great efforts of our scientists and our medical people cannot be cured, death 
stalks in and leers its ugly face and takes somebody away. Well, death didn't take Jesus away. The Father permitted him to die, and Jesus submitted himself to die. You know, all through the Old Testament, we read of lambs being slain upon stone altars as a symbolic offering that that represented the forgiveness of sins of those who brought the lamb. We don't ever read of any lamb that ever stood up and said, take me, (laughs) I'll do it. Lambs in the Old Testament didn't volunteer. But Jesus Christ, Son of the highest God, was the Lamb who volunteered with the perfect qualifications of being all the holiness and righteousness of God himself, and yet also a man vulnerable in real flesh who could die a real death. He was perfectly suited to be not the Lamb who volunteered to do that once, and then we'd have to find another one every year. But the Lamb whom Hebrews and so many other passages say did it once and for all for those who would receive him, those who would trust in him. And so where Paul is asking us to gaze hard upon Christ and know the grandeur, it's stunning what is here, that one who was so high would go down so low, not just to die any old way, you know, not just a nice dignified die in your sleep all composed with your hands folded over your chest, to die in the most shameful, painful, ignominious, terrible way a human being could die. Friendless, rejected, naked, bloodied, whipped. That's the dead death he died. Even, Paul says, even this worst death. The death on a cross. Gaze on that, he says. And you'll begin to know what humility actually is. And you ought to be stunned as you look on it. Well, thirdly then, Let's ask the practical question. Why did Paul tell us about Christ plunging from the heights like this? He didn't just do it to give a great hymn of praise to Christ. He did it for the practical motive to say to us, do nothing from rivalry or vain conceit, but in humility count others to be more significant than yourselves. You look not only on your interests, but on those of others. And you say, if you're like me, how does anybody expect me to do what Christ did? The example is so high, it's so exalted, it just seems utterly impossible. But I would ask you to remember Paul was writing to people who were new creations in Christ, who possess the Holy Spirit of God, who therefore have Christ living in them, working in them, empowering the things that Scripture commands. And so I'm going to give you quickly five very short practical habits of a new humility. I probably could give you 20. I'm not suggesting these are all-inclusive or exhaustive, but here are five habits of a new humility. One is this. You can cultivate humility by dwelling often in your study of Scripture on the greatness and the grandeur of God. Pursue as you read Scripture the lofty doctrines of election and sovereignty and, and see how large God is. You see, when you worship the true God who is very large, and soars beyond the limits of your understanding, then you will bow before that God. He's not a little tame God that you've created or you can control. Secondly, keep short accounts every day of the shame and deceit of your own sin. 
you should be and need to be regularly shocked by what you behold in yourself. You should every day be ready to sing the words of the hymn, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. I'm a mess. I'm ruined. Look at me. Every good I try, I fail at it. Why, I have nothing to hold my head up for. I'm a debtor to grace. And debtors, you see, readily and easily are humble before the one to whom they owe the debt. Thirdly, a way to cultivate this humility is to often express gratitude to God in prayer. You cannot be arrogant while you're being thankful. It's an unthankful person who blusters his way through life talking about my rights and how I'm not getting what God owed me and why did God ever do this to poor little old me? I deserve better. The person who's giving thanks to God is likewise a humble person. Fourthly, a way to set humility in motion is to immediately do the little things of serving others as soon as you see them. And I don't mean great expensive tasks that might tie you up for months of your life or or take thousands of your dollars. I'm talking about the very little things like showing courtesy to another person. Courtesy is, is a way of serving a person, you know. Listening with full attention to other people and their needs and their problems giving them words of praise or encouragement. That's a a means of service that lets you enter into that other person and see that other person with appreciation, and it will lead you to bigger things of service. And fifthly, I give you this as another way of seeking Christ-like humility. You need to seek and deliberately cultivate associations with people who are in some ways disadvantaged from yourself. I mean economically disadvantaged, the poor, physically disadvantaged from you, mentally disadvantaged, emotionally, spiritually, people who you would look upon and say, wow, I'm sure glad I'm not like that. That's what you quietly say. For example, you need to make times in your life, deliberate times, when you would get very close to somebody who's jobless, Somebody who's staring with stark terror at their economic situation and saying, what will I do? Somebody who's homeless. It's not hard at all to have contact with the homeless. Just go visit Water Street someday. They'll be glad to put you in contact and let you help serve the food some Friday night or something. And you'll begin to see what's going on. Somebody who has a a mental handicap. Somebody who's deeply depressed. Go with somebody whose entire life experience for generations has, has been at the bottom of the human heap, like folks who visited Native Americans on the Lakota Reservation in South Dakota this year, saw lives where, what is it, 83% unemployment? It's unbelievable. You need to have some kind of real contact and visualization of those lives. And then what you do, you see, is look for the image of God in those persons. In the person with dementia. You say, this, this person is, is made in the image of God. And, and I can't have a good conversation here. And, and things aren't the way they are with other people. But I have to believe this is a valued, chosen vessel of God. 
What do I see here that God sees? And what you will suddenly discover is you're not the most superior person on the block. And your mind will be transformed, and your actions will correspond, and you'll begin to serve without congratulating yourself for serving. You'll sense that it's a privilege to do little things that you are able to do for these who are the people of Christ. You see, our society prizes wealth, glamour, powerful domination. Christ prizes humility, the antithesis of human arrogance and pride. And Jesus living in you will lead you in the opposite direction of the rest of society. And you'll find the world won't. It's not, I can't promise you that the world's going to give you a ticker tape parade for this life. They won't. God will one day. The world won't. Humility is the pathway of God to ultimate greatness. And only the cross of Jesus both shows us what it is and empowers it so that we say, like Isaac Watts in his hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count a loss. Whatever I've gotten in this world, it isn't anything And I'm ready to pour contempt on all my pride. May it be so, as Christ lives in us. Father, this is a great challenge from the apostle, an awesome challenge. Thank you for the one who holds the bar so high. We cannot do what Jesus did, but in small measure as he works in us, teach us what this humility is about for your glory and your praise in Jesus' name. Amen.